0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders, and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. This episode of the New Health Club podcast is part of our Heal Soul series, sponsored by Dr. Bronos, the activist soap company from California. Dr. Bronos is a family-owned company founded in 1948 that makes organic and fair-trade personal care products of the highest quality and dedicates profits to promote a better world for all. The Brauner family started making soap in 1858 here in Germany and carries on the family soap-making tradition today by using the company as an engine for progressive social change. I got to know Dr. Bronner's when he lived in Los Angeles, and when I went shopping at Trader Joe's, I made sure to pick up some of the delicious peppermint soap that all of us were using and loving. It was such a California thing, Dr. Bronner's, which I loved. But hey, there's more to it. Dr. Bronner's caps executive pay at five times the lowest paid position, and dedicates all profits not needed for business development to organizations working in support of regenerative organic agriculture, animal rights, community betterment, criminal justice reform, fair pay and fair trade, and drug policy reform, which includes the responsible, equitable integration of psychedelic medicine into American and global culture. The company donated an estimate of $7 million to activists and charitable causes in 2019 alone. For more information on Dr. Bronner's in Germany, please visit drbronners.de. For more information on Dr. Bronner's globally and in the United States, please visit drbronner.com. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club Show. My guest today is Rachel Yehuda. Rachel is a professor of psychiatry and neuroscience, the vice chair for veterans affairs in the psychiatry department and the director of the traumatic stress studies division at the Mount Sinai school of medicine. She also leads the PTSD clinical research program at the James J. Peters VA medical center. In 2020, Rachel became director of the center for psychedelic psychotherapy and trauma research at Mount Sinai in New York. So this is an important podcast for Germany and an important podcast for me. Even if I come at least 50% from a French background, the topic of the Holocaust is important to me because there are still the other 50% in me that are German. And I could not wait to talk to Rachel about this, since she is a specialist in researching epigenetic trauma in the context of Holocaust survivors Rachel is a pioneer in understanding how the effects of stress and trauma can transmit biologically to the next generation. She has studied the children of Holocaust survivors and of the pregnant women who survived the 9-11 attacks. So how is it possible that children or grandchildren of traumatized parents do struggle with anxiety and depression, but not the parents themselves? This is what Rachel and I talk about. Also, how she will start to research the program at Mount Sinai to treat these trauma-related depressions with MDMA, all in collaboration with MAPS. We also address what happens if Germans undertaking a psychedelic journey start to see their Nazi past in their trip. In my psilocybin experience at Synthesis back in February this year, I spent hours in a concentration camp and talked to a rabbi. Something I would never expected to see. So suddenly, in general, we would understand conflict, shame, and guilt on a much deeper level, on more levels than the political ones, if suddenly psychedelics would come into the game of understanding our history, our nation, and ourselves. But now over to Rachel and her amazing research. I hope you enjoy the show. <coughs> First, of course, I would like to introduce you a little bit to our guests. Um, So you are a professor of psychiatry and neuroscience, the vice chair for veterans affairs in the psychiatry department and the director of traumatic stress studies division at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Sounds already very impressive. (laughs) Thank you. uh, So, but of course, I mean, Uh, Before we get into psychedelics and um, your treatment, your your actual research about the treatment, of course, um, I would like to start with the topic of how you research epigenetic trauma in families that are affected, it's it's like a soft word for this, by the Holocaust. Um, And I think for most listeners and and, and people who will watch the show – this will be already something that they hardly ever heard of. So maybe you, as the experts, start to talk a little bit about what that is.
1: Well, sure. Um, my work began really in the early 90s, and we were studying Holocaust survivors because we were interested in the effects of trauma. So we were interested in studying um, not only Holocaust survivors, but combat veterans and rape victims and other victims of trauma. PTSD was a new diagnosis and there was a lot to learn. Um, In the course of studying Holocaust survivors, um, we made a pretty remarkable discovery. And that was that although even 50 years after the Holocaust, many survivors still had many symptoms of PTSD and it had them for, at that, that point, decades very few of them had ever sought treatment for their, um, for their psychological pain or for any of their mental health symptoms. And this really struck me that uh, we made this observation in the late 1980s and the early nineties. And it was, um, it was a really powerful, um, really powerful observation. So, um, I decided to set up a clinic for Holocaust survivors. I I was a new professor at Mount Sinai. I'd gotten there in 1991. And we um, set about to try to see if we can create a place for Holocaust survivors to be treated. And we set up a clinic for Holocaust survivors, but uh, it was the children of Holocaust survivors that called us um, in much greater numbers than their parents did. And at first I was very surprised by this. My parents are not Holocaust survivors. Many people ask me that question and I didn't understand um, why adult children of Holocaust survivors were claiming to be casualties of the Holocaust, which was their phrase and trying to let me know that the Holocaust had affected them too. And at first I kind of understood this. I mean, imagine being um, raised in a home uh, with Holocaust survivor parents who were very symptomatic. That could have an effect on children. But the children of survivors were insisting that it was more than that. And we began to do research studies um, beginning in the early 90s, looking at things like whether there are increased prevalences of mental health conditions in adult children of Holocaust survivors like depression or PTSD or anxiety disorders, there was. Um, We began to look at some biologic aspects of children of Holocaust survivors. We began looking at very similar hormones and very similar biologic manifestations as we had been looking at in PTSD. And to make a long story short, there was definitely an impact of having um, a Holocaust survivor parent on biology of the adult child. And much later, and I guess more recently, when the field of epigenetics became um, popular and, and more understood... Uh, we began to examine epigenetic mechanisms in adult children of Holocaust survivors and in their parents. And we found sure enough that there were similar changes in stress-related genes in adult children of Holocaust survivors as in their Holocaust survivor parents, but not in all children of Holocaust survivors and not in all parents. So what we began to unpack was a story where depending on whether you had a mother or father who was exposed to the Holocaust, or a mother or father who had PTSD, this would provide a slightly different imprint on the Holocaust offspring. So um, that's the story. Um, The story suggests that there is definitely an effect on the second generation of having had a parent who was exposed to extreme trauma and also an effect uh, based on which parent it was and also what the age of the parent was when the trauma occurred
0: like one question I I think is also like immediately coming up is how did or did you also research how the survivors actually itself are reacting because I I remember um listening to to a, a podcast with Esther Perel and she comes from this um mm-hmm. little town in, in Belgium um and she said that there were just one like one half of the survivors I mean it was a village where only survivors lived including her parents I think and one one of the um one part of the survivors would be actually... Enjoying life and um, being just very happy and like grateful that they survived. and the other half was just kind of kind of making it through life. And, and of course you would think that um, the survivors are the ones that were affected most, but then your, your research is basically showing that the generations after are rather the ones with uh, with the real mental health problem kind of.
1: No, um, Holocaust survivors also had mental health problems. But the real take home of the research is that there is just what you said, enormous variability mm-hmm. in the way people respond to trauma. And that's been probably the most interesting and difficult under. Um, difficult thing to understand about Mm -hmm. the effects of trauma. Why don't we all act the same? When you do animal research in a laboratory, you expose mice to some stressor, everybody, all the mice behave in the same way. Mm -hmm. What's different really about um, this kind of a circumstance where there's extreme trauma that nobody would question how extreme it is. And yet you have very different responses, not so much in the immediate aftermath of a trauma. In the immediate aftermath of a trauma, responses are more universal. But as time goes on, you definitely see some people really holding on to a lot of pain and not being able to kind of move forward, getting really stuck in the narrative of the past and all the things that they've told themselves about what it means While other people seem to be able to release it and kind of embrace the future and go into the future, even as someone who's been exposed to extreme trauma. And that's really been the mystery of the work in the field. And the idea that there are certain effects that can be passed on or that um, offspring can embody some of the effects of a parent provides a clue to the fact that there might be very, very complex uh, processes that are involved in the response to trauma, some of which were in place before the trauma began. And that's a very challenging concept. But that seems to be the case, that there's Mm -hmm. a lot of variation and that trauma exposure may release certain effects, but they may release them when, you know, when the planets are aligned just so mm-hmm. and in some people
0: and i mean when you when you started to, the study which was kind of like a while ago now so you you had these results and then i think you also were looking into treatments for for the let's say for the people who came to you to to search help and i mean I can already just imagine what it, that that is a very specific um setup for a therapist to treat somebody with a holocaust background or who, who was even a survivor and the only thing I read recently was about this Dutch um psychiatrist was it Jan Bastians yes. who treated um survivors with LSD therapy because the Dutch king was allowing it for a while to, for him to do that um, but I mean, then, as we know, LSD, ther- LSD therapy um, it disappeared completely. So, how did you start to treat the people that came to you with a mental health problem related to to Holocaust?
1: Well, that's a really good question because when we established the clinic in the early nineties, uh, there wasn't a lot known about how to treat trauma survivors with PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't being treated the way they're treated now with cognitive behavioral therapies. Um, So we really talked a lot about what we should do. I should make it clear that I um, established this clinic as a scientist. So I was especially unclear on Mm -hmm. what kind of treatments to provide um, and really looked to my clinical colleagues to help me. Um, What we ended up doing since there wasn't an established way to treat trauma and PTSD in the early nineties was um, I guess I gravitated towards interpersonal models, the work of Irving Yellum, Mm -hmm. um, some of the models um, really about interpersonal and existential psychology, um, Viktor Frankl. And we began to um, do group psychotherapy just to see what kind of things, what kind of themes would arise and how people might get better simply by talking about whatever they wanted to bring up, usually traumatic material. But until very recently, I don't think there has been a very good path to understanding um, exactly how to treat PTSD. Mm -hmm. Cognitive behavioral approaches that are very, very popular um, involve getting the patient to talk about their trauma just in a narrative mm-hmm. and teaching them kind of breathing and behavioral techniques to um, calm themselves down if they get very triggered or stimulated by their, tra- their own trauma story. And, you know, in some sense it could work, but many people do get way too distressed and And very, very aroused, so um, especially when the trauma is a very complicated trauma, and by that I mean that it might have happened over a long period of time that there were elements of the trauma that were not all bad, um, that you might have been a very young child and not understood all the implications of the trauma so Um, then it becomes hard to even have a narrative, let alone to keep repeating the narrative. So I think cognitive behavioral therapies work best when there is a very clear event that occurred with a beginning and an end, a clear victim, a clear perpetrator, a clear story. Mm -hmm. But for many of us, that's not what it is. Uh, For many of us, we kind of feel that something happened and we're... We're not quite sure that how we're behaving today is really a result of that. And I can't tell you how many combat veterans I've spoken to, especially in the 90s, before PTSD became so popular, that really didn't connect the dots between the fact that they were having nightmares and weren't sleeping and weren't being able to concentrate weren't able to express feelings of love and happiness and the fact that they had been in a war 20 years earlier. They just really didn't make that connection. And so now we know more about PTSD, we're more quick to make a connection, but many people still aren't quite sure what the impact that events on in their lives have had on them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's then it becomes really hard to talk in therapy about events not quite knowing whether how you feel today is related to those events. Many times we repress things that have happened to us or we react to events in the current time because of something that happened in the past that maybe isn't so close to our awareness.
0: But um, then, fortunately, psychedelics came along (laughs) or you met Rick Doblin, I think, right, from from MAPS. And um, so, and I mean, just, I mean, Listeners, uh, like the the audience of that show already knows we're talking about psychedelics here. But I mean, maybe you can explain a little bit um, again how especially MDMA is, let's say, the first tool that is being researched right now and also maybe approved this year for psychedelic therapy and why it is so amazing to kind of break the PTSD situation of a person. And I mean, I just, I'm sure you've seen that movie too, the Trip of Compassion movie, just for those who are listening or looking at this. It's a movie from Israel where you can actually see how three people are working through their trauma with the support of MDMA. But maybe just tell us, how did you get in touch with the whole psychedelic model, you could say?
1: Well, actually, um, many years ago, when the um, first treatment trial in Israel was happening, a friend of mine told me about MDMA and asked, asked me what I thought. We were invited to come and meet the investigators. And at the time, I was very suspicious about whether you can have such a dramatic um, improvement in such a short period of time. I really didn't understand it. And um, it's important for me to say that and um, it's important for me to admit that, I think, because um, many people are still very skeptical about uh, about psychedelics and how they work. Uh, but as I came to understand it better, MDMA is almost a perfect fit for PTSD at least theoretically, because one of the th- because MDMA does a couple of things that really, really help. When people are taking MDMA, they are more compassionate towards themselves. Uh, People with PTSD have awful lot of self-blame and guilt and shame and recriminations about the trauma that happened to them. Um, Even when the trauma wasn't their fault and it usually isn't um, almost always it isn't um, they feel that there's something that they should have done um, so that there would have been a better outcome, or they feel uh, that maybe they deserved Mm -hmm. that this trauma would befall them. The punishment, basically. The punishment, yes. And so if you have a drug, if you're taking a medication that kind of mutes that, and you don't feel the harsh self-critical judgment about yourself that you usually feel, especially when you're talking about your trauma, that can be very helpful. But MDMA also increases interpersonal trust. So it helps you work with a therapist better. And many people with PTSD are very reluctant to disclose very personal um, aspects about what happened. Um, Not only because it's hard to do that, but they don't want to be judged by it. But having a drug that really increases interpersonal trust can really help. Another thing that MDMA does is it reduces fear of traumatic memories. Now that's a gigantic benefit to somebody who, is, um, who does have a fearful response when their traumatic memory um, comes to their mind. People sometimes start to shake or experience um, rapid breathing or experience a fight or flight reaction when they talk about their trauma Um, that's a a very big sign of PTSD. But if you have a medication that is going to mute the brain center, fear center, usually in the amygdala, then a person can kind of approach the trauma and maybe look at it differently. And that is really the whole point of trauma therapy, whether you do it with a psychedelic or not. The idea is to try to look at the trauma that occurred to you and see something different that will put it in a different perspective Um, And, again, one of the quotes that uh, Rick Doblin always Mm -hmm. uh, quotes is from Stanislav Graf, his mentor, um, that the proper use of psychedelics can be to psychiatry what the the telescope is to astronomy Mm -hmm. or the microscope is to biology. And I love that quote because... It's exactly the idea of being able to look at something about what happened and see something that you couldn't see before that usually gives somebody a breakthrough. And once you see that, that really is a breakthrough. It's not a gradual process after that, it's a very rapid process of trying to integrate and really work with that insight. And that insight can make all the difference in the world. And it can be something small. For example, A a child who was um, abused when they were five or six years old may have this very obvious realization of just how small they were relative to their abuser, but in their mind, they weren't small. It's true. In their mind, they were big, and why didn't they do something? And so just a little um, insight like that, and then all of a sudden, the rest of the story becomes a different story And it can take you on your path to having a good life afterwards and to feeling good about yourself afterwards. So it's not so much that MDMA is a magical pill that takes away your PTSD. It it provides an environment where a trauma survivor can do work that is otherwise too hard or too painful to do, or just that they haven't gotten close to doing because the environment wasn't right to do it. But once you've had that insight, then you're really on a road to, to recovery and resilience and even post-traumatic growth. So the magic of the psychedelic in this context is in really putting you in an altered state so that you can do something that has been hard to do in a different state. That's mm-hmm. so. That's why I. Uh, that's what I think is really good about it. And with the protocols that have been developed mm-hmm. around MDMA, there's also a lot of um, preparation and integration, and a lot of hours of psychotherapy, even mm-hmm. when the when the patient is not taking the MDMA. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about just how much psychotherapy is involved. Um, Almost more hours of psychotherapy are involved in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy than any kind of routine cognitive behavioral uh, treatment.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. when you when you research these sessions with people who, whose mental health problems are related to the Holocaust, so have you have you been present in these sessions or have you witnessed? No, no, something? I've never. No, no. no okay. we haven't.
1: We haven't given MDMA to anybody yet. Okay. Um, we're just starting a center. We hope that we will be approved within the next few months to okay. fully mm-hmm. begin. Mm-hmm. We have, we've already gotten our FDA approval. We're on our way. Um, but we have not, I have not, and my team has not administered any psychedelics yet. Mm-hmm. But we're really excited about being able to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And one of the reasons is that we're in very conservative, mainstream academic settings Um, And I think that as psychedelics begin to penetrate mainstream Mm. academic centers and more conservative clinical settings, then this could be a tremendous um, paradigm shift for mental health. It can really change the way that mental health is accessed and treated and viewed Um, and also uh, is the gateway to making these treatments more available to those who really need them.
0: Well, last week was certainly um, a good, a good way, a good direction to uh, to support that way. But um, very, very
1: promising. Well, we had a clear yeah. winner last week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Before the forty winner
0: was clear. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, I wanted to talk to you about something else because I went to synthesis to the legal psilocybin retreat in in Amsterdam in in February. Mm-hmm. And it was my second psychedelic experience. The first one was with uh, was an, a guided LSD journey. And the second one was a guided psilocybin story. And in both um, kind of journeys, you could call it, I felt, I mean, they're both like five or six hours long, which you don't really feel because your, your sense of time is disappearing. But in both journeys, I spent... I felt like I spent six hours in a concentration camp oh, and wow. it is. And then I was like, okay, this is maybe just my obsession with um, Jewish culture or like my interest. And I was always interested in this, but then I started to talk to a friend of mine and she was also at synthesis with her husband, German. And she said that he's seen like he spent five hours in the second world, War, <laughs> like in his trip. And, then of mm-hmm. course I was like wow this is of course also something that will bring up let's say the um the story or the the history of the in that case let's call them uh, aggressors or the Nazis you could say so and of course this is something that might be in the future like insanely interesting how like both parties involved in the situation like the holocaust um will be able to deal with their kind of things what they have to do with the whole situation do you know know what i mean you're
1: saying oh my gosh it's so fascinating what you're saying because again i um started going to germany for the first time Mm. um in the 90s and it is very interesting because i had was just starting to um you know, get my work out there and be invited Mm -hmm. to conferences. And I kept saying no to invitations to Germany, Um, kind of unconsciously. I didn't really think that I had a fear or anything. And then somebody that had invited me now for the third time said, does this have to do with the fact that I'm German? (laughs) And I was like, he just sort of made the unconscious conscious. And I said, no, of course not. And of course Mm -hmm. I went. And I realized that probably there had been something there but what I began to realize for the first time is that Germans, um, second generation Germans, carry a tremendous amount of feelings and burden from what happened in the generation before them. So the story that you're telling me doesn't surprise me at all, because it, it was, again, so unspoken. So many um, Germans wanted to ask their parents, well, why didn't you hide Jews? Or did you... Did you turn someone in or were you in the army? Was it against your will? Did you go voluntarily? I mean, people had a lot of questions and there wasn't a lot of open dialogue about it. And a lot of the shame and the guilt of the atrocities were really a stain on kind of the consciousness of second generation, no matter what their family history was because of the unknown. So this idea of... um, Psychedelics being able to take you out of your own limited world and connect you with experiences from from your ancestors or um, experiences that make you feel responsible for a collective world are very healing. And I know that there is a study right now um, uh, coming out of Imperial College where Mm -hmm. they're going to be using... Or they have used um, ayahuasca in the context of healing for Palestinians and Israelis. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The MAPS uh, mm-hmm. sponsored mm-hmm. Um, study, and um, I, I think it's a beautiful idea. So again, if you are in Germany and you're, uh, and you weren't even alive during World War II, and somehow you feel that that's that's something that can be explored and integrated in, in what that means. And, and who's to say it, it isn't the beginning of a real healing. And again, post-traumatic growth involves using your trauma history to then turn it around for yourself and for others. Um, many people that are offspring of Holocaust survivors are involved, are involved in healthcare or social justice. Oh. It's not an accident. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's really a thing. And so I think having these kinds of experiences are so interesting and teach us so much about what's in ourselves and what we care about and what we're worried about. And they give us just a lot of food for thought about what's inside of us. It's like really, really taking a look in that microscope.
0: Yeah, because also it changes the, pers- I mean, it changes, but it kind of increases the perspective that is, has just been like a political or a, like a society related perspective, like, um, yeah. and most people can't maybe emotionally attach or like relate to this kind of political observation. But well,
1: yes, that's that's, that's right. I'm um, I'm very touched by that by the story that you just told me. Well, I mean, you know, look, and, the, the
0: thing is, it started with. I mean, I went to. After school I went to have lunch with my my grandparents and my grandfather of course was in the war. So and I think for years our lunches were that we were kind of fighting although I loved him but we were fighting about how they did not know about Auschwitz. And this was our topic over lunch when I was yeah. 12. And he hated Melina Dietrich, and I said I love her because she didn't collaborate with the Nazis. This was a whole conversation for years and years until I didn't go to lunch anymore because I finished school. And I totally forgot about this. But so, and then when, um, like, the the next time I thought about it was at Synthesis suddenly after this whole um, experience. And, I mean, I think that... um, people who have done psychedelics like i mean in a guided and, and way and safe and like safe set and settings mostly i mean I, this is like my my topic because i'm half german but even if they have other like nation related conflicts that their perspective change changes uh, dramatically so and of course this like in the long run means that national conflicts can be affected by I don't know, psychedelic therapy, for
1: example. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree with what you've said more. I think, you know, in the 60s and 70s when the, um, when the conservative establishment in the United States were very worried about the impact of psychedelics and rushed to make right. it illegal, mm-hmm. part of that was that they could not get um, this, the younger generation to go to Vietnam. They were protesting right. war, and again, after you've taken psychedelics, the idea of going to war, it's such a loathsome idea. Right? Even
0: eat animals doesn't work for some people That's anymore. Right. It's really true. And so, some people
1: were like after this, really I true. couldn't That's right. eat a fish anymore. <laughs> yes. So so again, you know, that was viewed as a problem that needed to be solved. We can't mm-hmm. make these psychedelics available. We will not we will not get our young generation to go willingly to war. Mm -hmm. Um, So sitting here from that perspective, you know, maybe a better solution. (laughs) I don't know, but I think that you're right. Your perspective changes. And so um, that might not be a bad thing, but again, we just have to wait and see. I think that Mm -hmm. the steps to decriminalize at least plant medicines Mm -hmm. or all all psychedelics um, is a good start, but mm-hmm. but it's not as good as really recognizing that these are um, compounds that might be really, really helpful to people in many, many ways. So we have to do the research that will provide the evidence so that we can make these experiences available to the people who might benefit from them.
0: Mm-hmm. So... Um... In terms of the, let's say the coming years. So, what what would you like to find out, or like, how, what's what's the thesis you would like to research as soon as possible?
1: Well, in the coming year, um, I just want to see whether my team and I can safely administer psychedelics in a hospital setting, um, and we're very interested also in doing scientific studies that will explain how psychedelics work mm-hmm. and for whom they work and what they do. Because I think that this is a very important responsibility that we have to understand what's happening. Um, right now, we, we tend to think about a lot of mental conditions, especially PTSD, as being biologically driven. Uh, we know a lot about the changes that happen in the brain and epigenetic changes and hormonal changes. And a very important question is whether um, having psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy changes those things Mm -hmm. and really restores people to different bodily states. Also, the experience of the um, psychedelic, you know, that there's a dramatic pharmacologic experience involving serotonin and uh, lots of other neurotransmitters and hormones when you take a psychedelic, but those effects are very short-acting. And so one question is, how can such a short experience result in such a transformational Mm -hmm. long-term process? And in that sense, that's exactly the question that we had when we began studying PTSD 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. was the same question. How can a single event that sometimes only takes moments result in psychological consequences that last For decades or years or decades. And so we have to start looking at some of the epigenetic processes um, that are involved. I guess I would call it the science of integration, not the immediate effects of the psychedelic, but what happens three months later, as you really start to come into contact with a really transformed self.
0: You mean also like in in how the integration works, like after you kind of met the new person you i mean you, your new person your your, your new self basically right?
1: right
0: so because i remember like because after, even after the psilocybin experience like a couple of weeks later um i mean i think you really feel feel like you realize in your brain things are different but of course you can't really tell exactly as the person who's done it you just i mean for example in what I can really confirm is that I, I mean, I'm, I was a journalist, I'm a writer. So, I mean, I always had so much trouble in concentrating and I was really like everything. I was distracted by everything and I had really often a hard time to really focus on the things I wanted to write. And after doing the psilocybin treatment, um, this disappeared it's. I mean, it, at least it became like so, so. Really, way less than it used to be. So, and it's really hard as the and it's hard, but it's really difficult to say as the person who is receiving the treatment to really specifically describe what what is it <laughs> that, yeah. that happens in you. But something kind of profoundly happens. Kind of. so that's
1: what we wanna study, yeah, and I great. think that um <laughs> you know I've heard that so many times, and I think you know people will say it's an ineffable experience, you know I can't describe it, but mm-hmm. people are very much aware that they have changed fundamentally, mm-hmm. and I think that um, trying to understand that at a molecular level is going to really open up a lot of doors for us in terms of understanding consciousness, in terms of understanding just the the drivers of how we feel in the body, how we heal, what kind of things really can improve the way we look at the world and the way we function, how our minds and our bodies are really connected. So we have the science and the tools to be able to do the work. Now we just have to focus um, on answering those questions and people that are taking psychedelics, mm-hmm. um, for, for the purposes of healing.
0: So, and the, the people who would come to your study, they, are they already mostly patients in, um, in the hospital or is it like a whole new study that you would create around this?
1: Yeah, we're, our first study <laughs> is going to be, uh, um, with, um, combat veterans. Oh, wow. Um, yeah hopefully at the VA. And um, so we are very excited about that mm-hmm. because um, this is a group that really needs healing and needs us to give, to provide better solutions than are currently available for them. So, Well, I mean, it seems excited. that
0: the, um, the veteran movement plays anyway, like a really big part in the whole psychedelic renaissance, right? I feel like a lot of people come forward. Well, there's no
1: question that a lot of veterans have sought psychedelics and sought um, kind of journeying to Costa Rica or other places where um, ayahuasca and other um, psychedelics are available. I think that that's a small minority, though, of veterans. Mm -hmm. I think um, a lot of veterans are afraid of psychedelics uh, because many may have had issues with substance abuse. And I'll tell you, in the in the mainstream world, people don't make such a distinction mm-hmm. between drugs like opiates or heroin yeah. and psychedelics like LSD. Um, to many people, all drugs are bad and don't use them. They're scary, and let's do motivational interviewing or get you to some rehab uh, because we're we haven't done a good job of really listening to patients who have claimed that their use of psychedelics has been important. Um, I remember I've I've spoken to many um, patients um, sometimes saying, well, you know, you drink a lot. Maybe we should should discuss your alcohol abuse before we talk about trauma. And they'll say, are you kidding? The alcohol is the only good thing in my life. I'm not getting rid of that. So it's very important to listen to what people are saying Mm -hmm. and what purpose any kind of substance abuse is serving for them. Obviously, in the case of alcoholism, you want to point out things that might be harmful and be standing in the way of recovery, but you always want to listen um, so that you understand what people have done to try to take away their own pain and then offer them something that might I might work a little better since we're all on the same side of trying to alleviate that pain. So it, it is a very interesting thing. But just, just having in society the distinction between therapeutic effects of psychedelics and um, the harmful effects of other uh, compounds that are even legal, um, opiates are legal. Alcohol is legal. Yeah, most, <laughs> you know,
0: most of these things, right? I many, mean
1: like- many of the drugs that can be abused can be can can be gotten legally, and so making something illegal isn't necessarily a way to um, stop people from taking things that they shouldn't take. But it certainly shouldn't be a way to prevent somebody from taking something that might mm-hmm. help them. So, you know, hopefully the FDA will approve. The use of uh, psychedelics, and therapists will be trained on how to use them, and we can figure out a way to have insurance pay for these therapies. Yeah, that's make them available. um, Make them available for whatever indication we learn that they're for, Mm -hmm. and and just usher in a new era where we're not so afraid of having. An altered state of consciousness, but it does seem to be something that terrifies people that haven't had one. And yeah, true. That mm-hmm. is something that we really want to understand, so that we can, so that we can help with that. Mm-hmm. What don't you want to see in that microscope? What are you so afraid you're going exactly, to? Exactly. Yeah. Well, like like last <laughs> yeah. time,
0: right? I mean, like in the '60s yeah. when. Suddenly, that wasn't. But then it's so interesting when you when you watch movies about the Vietnam War. I mean, especially Apocalypse Now, like the biggest PTSD movie on like ever. And I talked to talked to Rick Dublin also about this on on, on the show. Um, but it's like full of substance abuse and like self medication. So I mean, it really shows that everything that's related to war requires a lot of self medication. So there's no other chance to survive a war. I mean, even other wars before had that kind of concept, right? I mean,
1: you're focused on getting through the day. You're focused on your survival. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that you don't think about that you, an hour from now, you could be, um, okay. You could be in a hospital on (laughs) Ketterman, but (laughs) you could also be dead. So,
1: yeah, I, I think so. So I think we have our work to do to kind of um to kind of get the public to understand mm-hmm. what the purpose of taking a psychedelic is to provide reassurance about the difference between using psychedelics therapeutically and mm-hmm. using them kind of non-judiciously. Um, and that that's in general, the education that has to happen around all medicines. Most people who are prescribed a medicine for an illness, we don't want someone opening their medicine cabinet and just popping those pills in their mouth. If they're given for a specific indication. Yeah. And so whatever, whatever our fear is, I think we have to sort of confront that fear and, um, and try to have a, a really sober conversation so that we can allow a lot of healing to take place. So I want to be part of that uh, process and education because um, I'm somebody that came from first being very skeptical and being very sure that anything that provides a very rapid change in consciousness and mental state Mm -hmm. is something that is dangerous. And, I I understand how very smart people might feel that way. <laughs> it's just incorrect.
0: So it, it has to yeah. be,
1: we have to replace that with a science that people can trust.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems to be the number one mm-hmm. thing. And in, um, in my experience also that as, as soon, I mean, it's even like these validation systems. If you say, well, it's researched in Yale and Harvard, people will immediately change their kind of idea about things, or like th- they suddenly start to listen. I mean, I just saw it in in the in the um a couple of ketamine podcasts we just did, and at the moment, people hear when they hear ketamine, they think of nightlife and mixtures from the nightlife that contain ketamine. But the moment you talk about how how Yale and Harvard are researching ketamine as antidepressants, it's like suddenly people. Start to, what, what do you mean like as antidepressants? And so it seems that they like strong validation system seems to seem to be a very good tool to um, kind of change, like, like your, like, like your hospital or like your yeah. established establishment, you could say. almost. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was um, very interesting. I mean, I have like another 20 questions. <laughs> but I mean, we probably have to do this in half a year when you started, hopefully, the treatment. Yes. And um, I think, yeah, that was one of the almost like most revolutionary podcasts, although it looked so super classy and um, (laughs) like so well-behaved. But it's such an interesting perspective um, that you have. And again, like especially for people here in Germany. And I mean, yesterday was November 9th and people didn't go out here in Berlin because of the lockdown. But the area where we are here and where I live is where all these uh, um, cobblestones are, where people got deported.
1: Well, and it was Kristallnacht. Yeah, Kristallnacht. Anniversary. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, uh, or like Reichspogromnacht, how it's called now here. No. People don't say that anymore here. It seems like it. So, and because of, yeah, because of um, COVID, it's kind of, you know, there was always like a little kind of a gathering of people going through the area here and because of COVID that didn't happen yesterday. But um, I feel like the perspective on the Holocaust is something that is just, um, could be so different in, in context with the psychedelic way of looking at it in the future. I, I
1: think, I think, you know, I think we have a nice tool here and I hope we use it for the correct healing purposes. Yeah. And um, thank you very much for sharing that story. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> really, really nice to hear that. Yeah. Actually. I mean, it was
0: very, it was also so, yeah. I mean, twice, right? I mean, I did not only like, I feel like I spent my two trips in Auschwitz without being like um, a, a Jewish person, but I was talking to rabbis. I was talking to all kinds of people. Like, it's
1: so fascinating to me.
0: It, I mean, it really is because I yeah. mean, why, you, would, you wouldn't go into the trip and, and saying like, oh, I think this time I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to feel like we, it is we in have a, We have a
1: shared consciousness and a shared humanity and we're all connected. We're all connected right. as people. And the power of psychedelics is to connect us not only to the earth and, and nature, but to one another. And as we begin to put ourselves in each other's shoes, I mean, what, what better way to kind of build a better future? Really, it's right. yeah. profound. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, thank you for coming on the New Health Club show. It was a great pleasure to have you here.
1: Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Bye bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more